Well, good evening, and welcome to a For Our Faith podcast. The question we'd like to discuss tonight is, should Christians be patriotic? You know, it's ironic to note that professing Christians comprise one of the most patriotic and vocally so sectors in the United States today. Typically, conservative professing Christians support strong family values, strong American military, law and order, often the death penalty, gun rights, and many conservative Christian organizations tend to publish textbooks um, for Christian day schools and for homeschooling that really promote uh, a patriotic feel, a love of country, a support of American government, especially uh, against more leftist ideas, and especially hold the United States up as a Christian nation or one of the the greatest nations, kind of the hope of mankind. And so tonight, you might be a listener who's just always taken this connection for granted, never given it much thought. But we want to examine this unconscious marriage of Christianity and patriotism and see, is this really what Jesus is looking for? Is this really what the Father wants to see in his people. Before we get started into our our main points tonight, we want to look at the Webster's 1828 definition of patriotism. Simply, it is love of one's country, the passion which aims to serve one's country, either defending it from invasion or protecting its rights and maintaining its laws and institutions in vigor and purity. Simply put, the focus of patriotism is love and passion to serve one's country and support and defend its ideas and its institutions. Now, up front, I'd like to note that two very scriptural commands that relate to Christians and government do not necessarily fall under the category of patriotism. First, Romans 13 makes it very clear that Christians, because governments are ordained of God, should, out of their conscience, obey the laws of the land, and cheerfully pay their taxes, or at least willingly pay their taxes. And 1 Timothy 2 makes it clear that prayer should be made for all men, especially those that are in authority, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So anything we discuss about patriotism does not necessarily affect or have anything to do with those specific commands to Christians and how they relate to government in obedience and prayer. One thing it's worth considering is that patriotism tends to construct an us-versus-them mindset. Typically, patriotic Americans view the rest of the world with some suspicion. There's concern that perhaps there's too many other people coming into the United States and that's going to harm the nation. Or we tend to, to view in a military engagement the other side and and realize that we protect our interests, we support our ideals, and that it's just natural that some will suffer because they're not one of us. And so the promotion and the defense of our interests, our ideas, are at the expense of others. And we've come to accept that while we haven't often maybe given that a lot of thought. We accept that as being natural. We accept that as just how the world works. And we're thankful, at least, that we have it nice, even if others don't. And I would argue that this attitude of us, them, 
stands in sharp contrast with the universal character of Christianity, as well as the fact that the gospel Jesus taught clearly had as its central content the fact that he is a king creating a nation that centers around himself. So our two points tonight are that Christianity, unlike patriotism, is universal in its scope and its appeal and its program. And the second main point is that the kingdom of God is actually a political entity of itself and a rival nation. And allegiance to that makes any patriotic attachment, any deep love and devotion for another nation suspect at best. So let's look at the universal character of Christianity. There are so many scriptures that we could look at. I've chosen to limit it to four. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Matthew 8, 10 and 11, and Revelation 7, 9 through 14. And I'll read through these and comment briefly on each. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The focus here is that as God has a single plan for all of humanity, yes, he is entering into that plan through Abram, but the goal is that through Christ the Messiah, the whole earth will be blessed. All the families or all of the nations will be included in this plan, in this program, in this blessing of God. Now, it's just hinted at in Genesis. But let's move to Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And again, we see in this last days, that all the nations, God desires all the nations to flow into his kingdom, into his house, into what he is building, to come to what he's establishing, and out from their old ways of war and violence and conflict and brokenness. Moving the New Testament in Matthew 8, 10, and 11, we see Jesus' response to a Roman centurion that had impressive faith. From 8, 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have, found, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so just simply a, a clear statement that this is not an exclusively Jewish thing. It was not only for the nation who shared blood ties with Abraham but that there would be people from all nations or from the east and from the west accompanying the globe that would sit down with them in God's kingdom. 
And then finally, I'll finish with Revelation 7, 9 through 14. I am omitting verses 11 through 12, and that doesn't change the, the meaning of the passage. After this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And here we see that the uniting force, the uniting power of all these people gathered around the throne is that they've come through great tribulation and wash their robes, making them white, the blood of Christ. Yet they've come from all nations, all kindreds, all tribes and peoples and tongues. To distill all of this, far from advocating an interest in only one geographic nation, or even in Old Testament kingdom of Israel, God shows a deep passion for all nations, people, kindred, and tongues to be a part of his kingdom and his new nation. It is clear that Christianity has a sharp divide between the world and the church, between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are outside of it. And that might seem at the outset similar to patriotism, except that there's always the invitation of the gospel that those who are not a part of the church, who are not part of the people of God, are welcome to repent to believe, and to be born again out of the world's kingdoms and into the kingdom of God. Now, our second main point is that the kingdom of God is the central content of the gospel. The choice of calling our Lord Jesus Christ is simply another way of saying Jesus the king. Christ means anointed one, and Jesus is God's anointed king. And he came in Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1 with the first public message that he spoke, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he's announcing, here's a kingdom. You need to repent, change your ways, break your allegiances, sever your ties with this world that is on a collision course with judgment and gather around me and see what I have for humanity. Remember, there is good news in the gospel. And the good news is that there's a new nation, this one nation that we read about in Isaiah 2, where there's no more war that's going to teach the world how to live at peace, that's going to show the world how to live in a restored and a redeemed way. Not only is this kingdom something entirely new and something beautiful, but in Matthew 2, we see the wise men entering Jerusalem asking not, where is the Savior who will show us the way to heaven? But rather, where is he that is born king of the Jews? This is clearly a rival claimant, as Herod the Great is sitting on the throne there in Jerusalem. And it gives us a sense that not only is there a kingdom, but that there exists a tension between this kingdom of God, of which Jesus was born king, and the rest of the kingdoms of this world that feel a threat. In Luke 1, Gabriel announces to Mary that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to David of an everlasting kingdom. 
to fill this in a little bit more, we'll look at uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. Here Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So specifically, Peter employs the concept of a holy nation, the special people of God that we're called to be and are, become a nation, and as a nation of God that is designed to advertise his praises and to display his mercy and goodness and light to the nations. As we live amongst other nations, we're strangers and pilgrims. We don't really belong to the nations that we happen to live in geographically. We're actually part of the kingdom of God. And then finally, as we relate to the other nations of the world, Christ gave us his great commission. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And so we see this new nation centered around Jesus going to the rest of the nations, called to teach and disciple, to baptize them out of the world and into the kingdom of God, showing them the necessity of observing everything that Christ commanded. One of the obvious uh, opportunities of this new nation is to show the world God's intent for humanity. And this stands in contrast with some common uh, patriotic lore. In one of professing Christianity's fondest patriotic remembrances, Puritan leader John Winthrop gave a message aboard the ship, the Arbella, just before this large uh, group of Puritans disembarked at Massachusetts Bay Colony. I believe the year was 1630. Among other things, he concluded that the eyes of the world were upon them and that they were there to be a city set on a hill. Now, he was arguing that the Massachusetts Bay Colony should be a model British colony that would eclipse what was going on in Plymouth and Virginia and all of the other uh, British colonies spread across the world. Americans have appropriated his words, especially conservative uh, Christian Americans have appropriated these words to apply to the United States as the hope of the world, the model of freedom. And you know, American patriotism is a bit unique because it's less centered on uh, a plot of land or an ethnic heritage And it's more centered on ideas like liberty, equality before the law, natural rights, limited government, and rule of law. These are the ideas enshrined in the Declaration and in the Constitution. Now, sadly, we have too often given the sense that these ideas are the great hope of mankind. They may be a compelling argument that these ideas lead to economic prosperity, orderly society, good government, but they hardly represent what mankind needs in his brokenness. You know, humans in creation were broken when Adam and Eve committed treason in Eden. And while government was instituted by God to prevent 
chaos and anarchy and a total breakdown and collapse of society. No government, no political philosophy can fix what we broke and what humans continue to break in their sinful condition. But that's why Christ came to inaugurate and form a new nation, a rival nation to all the powers of the world that lie under the sway of the wicked one. This new nation actually offers the cure for humanity's evil hearts and ways. This nation offers the cure for the individual heart. It offers a cure for the corporate nation. It teaches us to forgive, to love, to walk in true holiness and righteousness. And so those of us who follow Christ in loving obedience must choose. We can either be patriotic and lift up enlightenment ideas about good government, free enterprise, and orderly society as the hope of the nations. Or we can exalt Jesus as king by living in a way that shows the whole world what all of humanity could be if everyone obeyed the king. Let's face it. People all over the world would love to be in America. The nations see us and they think, see how much they have. But I would contend that it's a far cry from what the nations noticed of the primitive church when they said, see how they love one another.